Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. First podcast I am recording after Thanksgiving. Hopefully, you had a nice time. I want to get back to business here and tell you uh, that you should go to wealthformula.com. Lots of different resources for you to check out there, uh, including the sign up for the accredited investor group, which is, again, this is where the magic happens. You're learning all sorts of stuff about this, but if you are an accredited investor, that's where you need to be so you can start actually taking action. Go to wealthformula.com, sign up, join the party. Also, um, want to remind you that there is a private community called Wealth Formula Network. If you can't get enough of Wealth Formula and your neighbors and your wife and your kids and your dog, no one wants to talk to you about personal finance, but you want to talk about it, this is a good place for you. Go to wealthformularoadmap.com. There's a course there that when you sign up, you'll also become part of Wealth Formula Network, and that includes our portal or biweekly um, Zoom video uh, calls, and also a Facebook group. So it's a lot of fun. Check it out, wealthformularoadmap.com. Now let's start out today uh, with this thought, okay? Now recently, I uh, started poking my nose into various physician financial Facebook groups, okay? So as you know, or you may not know, I don't know, but I am a physician. I don't practice. I haven't practiced in a few years now. But I am a physician. And, um, you know, listen, I try to stay away from these kinds of forums, these physician financial forums, because they always put me in a bad mood, right? But the problem is that there's these Facebook alerts that come up. You've seen them, right? Like they pop up. Oh, such and such made a comment. What ends up happening is they pop up on my phone and the next thing you know, my brain reacts instinctually. Uh, my brain reacts instinctually for its dopamine hit. That's what happens, right? That's how everything's designed. So all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I need my dopamine. So I push the button and I read something. And I end up poking around in these groups. And I'm often left, well, a little bit nauseous. Because, uh, and listen, it's not because I, you know, fundamentally disagree with a lot of these, you know, investing paradigm paradigms that people are talking about and waxing poetic about. Uh, it's not because I consider what they're talking about outdated conventional financial wisdom uh, regurgitated by, you know, like by uh, various mindless pundits. I mean, that really doesn't bother me that, oh, I'm used to that. I'm immune to it. What really bothers me is the attitudes people have in these groups. It's really pretty bad. You know, the overall flavor of conversation in these forums can really be best described by the word scarcity. And I'm not talking about the young doctors who just come out of school and they're broke and buried in debt. Well, they have no resources. They have limited resources. What I'm talking about is those know-it-all followers of these various influences in this space. And there's certain language that's become pervasive amongst them which I just can't stand, right? Like there's this one thing they always say, oh, live like a resident. It's like a mantra. And for you non-physicians out there, what that means is living like you did when you were in training and making less than $50,000 per year. Uh, you know, the idea here, live like a resident, is that you should live like a hermit so you can get to that magic number dictated by this thing they all worship called a 4% rule. 
right? They want to get there as soon as fast, as soon as they can, because apparently with the 4% rule, if you get there, you have reached, you know, financial independence and, um, you know, you are, they, you know, you're on fire or whatever you want to, they say, and never mind that the 4% rule was, uh, created, uh, I think between, I want to say it was 1956 and 1976. That's where that data's from. Uh, you know, I mean, in a, in an environment where the idea of 0% interest rates was next to, you know, it was unfathomable, but anyway, let's, let's just pretend that it, that's the law and that's what they do. Anyway, on top of that, there, what that really bothers me in these discussions, um, is again, the scarcity, right? So there's one blogger who, who I remember writing this thing about how, you know, you don't need, you only need 25% of what you make today to retire. You know, all this stuff is really predicated on some kind of strange machismo, right? Like how sparse can you live? And the more sparse you can live, the manlier you are. In fact, I see people making negative comments about physicians who just, you know, they, 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 you know, if you drive a nice car, you drive a Tesla, you drive whatever, well, you're being financially irresponsible. That's not cool. It is so strange. It's like there's some strange peer pressure amongst the physician community that is just, I don't know, it's mind-boggling. I don't understand it. Now, listen, I'm a first, you know, I'm a personal finance podcaster in the uh, alternative space, right? That's what I am. I'm a, but I'm a financial podcaster. I'm not really a self-help guy necessarily, but I do have to say that attitude goes a long way. And then I can honestly say that I don't have a scarcity type bone in my body. And you know what? I really do believe that this is why I've had some personal financial success that is sort of abnormal amongst my physician colleagues, right? To me, wealth, uh, the wealth that's available to you and to me is actually limitless, and I think the idea of trying to live your life in fear like a peasant is kind of a sad way to live. Instead, I would suggest maybe focusing on expanding your means and letting your lifestyle expand with it, right? Enjoy your life. Life is short, you know? Isn't it depressing to think that your sole purpose in life is to save enough money so that you can live on 25% of what you live now and hope that you don't outlive it? I mean, that's essentially what this stuff is all about. This is what they're all talking about. And it's just, oh, my God, how depressing. Now, if you're one of the devotees of the aforementioned movement, you don't need to send me mean mail. I get that sometimes from people, and they tell me they're devotees of you know some blogger or something like that. And, and, um, you know, so I get those and I also get, uh, any sort of response from people in the forums who basically tell me I'm full of it. So anyway, I try to keep my hand off the keyboard there. You know, the good news for me is that my listeners and my ecosystem and the wealth formula nation tend to be people who truly believe in abundance. And it is a pleasure really to speak with people like that with an open mind. And if you've come to one of our meetups, I think you will, you really understand that because people like this are totally different, right? They're not cynical, right? The cynical stuff really is just, oh, so not attractive, you know? Um, and I should point out that people with this abundance uh, attitude, physicians like that in our group, well, I also have to add that these are probably the wealthiest physicians and dentists that I've known. And it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that they have these different abundant mindsets. People with abundance mentality are fun to talk to in general, and that's why I do this podcast, okay? Um, and it's even more fun in a question-and-answer session like we will do today when we come back as we do part two of Ask Buck. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. 
One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey, and we are ready to go here with week due, or part two of Ask Buck. I should point out that if we start running a little late and there's still a lot of questions, there may be a part three here because uh, I understand that there is only so much uh, information that can be absorbed or should be absorbed at one time. So keep an eye on if I keep if uh, this part part is going longer than uh, 30 minutes or so, we will have a part three as well. So uh, before I get started with the questions, one question that came up quite a bit in terms of uh, recently, uh, from something in uh, the Accredited Investor Club. By the way, if you're interested in joining Investor Club, uh, you should go to wealthformula.com uh, if you are an accredited investor and sign up because that's where the action happens. That's where the the fun stuff actually happens. Here we just talk about it, you know? It's sort of like reading a book. Uh, but once you read a book, uh, you can only learn so much. you got to go out there and start putting it to work. And that's exactly what the accredited investor group is. So if you're lucky enough to be accredited, go and join it. So um, I do uh, want to uh, address one thing, which was um, uh, that uh, there was a there was a divestment or an upcoming divestment. In other words, a, a building that we were invested in as a group um, uh, is being sold, and it's getting some nice returns. Uh, you know, a- annualized returns of twenty percent. Um, and the question I got from a lot of people on that was, is there any way to roll this over into like some sort of 1031 exchange? Because, you know, all of a sudden you've got a, some profits and, you know, the reality of profits and recapture and, and all that starts to come. The answer is no, you can't do a 1031 typically if, uh, you know, if you're a limited partner, um, there are circumstances in which you could potentially do that as a tenants in common structure or something like that. But what I'll tell you is that the majority of of uh, syndicators who have, are experienced in that sort of thing do not do it because it's a pain. Uh, there is a lot of moving parts to it. Uh, you have to trust a lot of people that you don't necessarily know all that well. And frankly, if a syndicator group and operator doesn't have trouble raising capital for their opportunities, they're going to be like, why would I do that? I'm just going to raise capital. So in reality, uh, if you're dealing with with uh, professional operators, generally speaking, you're not going to be able to do anything on a 1031 basis. There are these uh, other options, though, shall we say, in terms of you know how can you potentially mitigate taxes using real estate if you can't 1031, the other option, of course, is what we talk about all the time, which is uh, bonus depreciation. Now, you know the bonus depreciation doesn't necessarily um, uh, help you as much if you, um, you know, if you have active income, but here's how it can help you, okay? Because um, say, for example, you have uh, invested in five properties, and then for each one of those properties, uh, there was a cost segregation analysis done, and then the cost segregation analysis was um, taken and uh, bonus depreciation was applied, and you got a K-1, right? Uh, and so you're getting these big losses. Now, if you're a W-2 uh, person, if you're anybody who's not a uh, real estate professional, you're not going to be able to apply those losses to active income anyway. So they're going to be sitting out there. You don't lose them. They're just there. 
So when you need them. Now, if you do that five times, all of a sudden you've got a massive amount of depreciation sitting there. And then all of a sudden, one of those five properties sells. And you've got capital gains. Well, guess what? The capital gains is passive capital gains. So you can use the... um, you know, you can use your 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 depreciation, all those losses that you've accumulated to offset the gains and the recapture. So again, I'm not a CPA, but I will tell you that I know this stuff reasonably well because I, I do a lot of this stuff. Uh, and if your CPA is not seeing it the same way, I highly recommend you talk to a more competent CPA and see what they think. Um, so anyway, that is uh, that is something uh, to think about uh, as divestments happen. And, it, and again, it incentivizes you to invest in multiple projects and to sort of diversify your um, your your passive uh, portfolio as well, so that you can constantly offset new gains. So that's the um, that's something I think is a very useful thing. And I know you didn't ask me about it, but I have decided to tell you about it anyway. So let's see. Now the first question um, from you. You, meaning the audience, is from Mike, who asks, uh, what are your thoughts about estate planning as we are all starting to build wealth? Do you have any strategies or tips for us to consider? Anything else we should be thinking about as we build uh, wealth and syndications, presumably as limited partners, of course. This could also be an interesting future show to bring a guest to discuss. As always, thanks for your thoughts and insight. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Mike. Um, So I... You're right. It would make a good guess. We've had some people talk about that in the past, but I think it's been a while. So I have invited, uh, based on your email, I did invite a an estate planning attorney who will be coming up in the, in the near future on our shows. Uh, but let me give you a little bit of what I know. And again, I'm not an attorney, but I am deeply steeped in this stuff. So think of these as my opinions. And you know, you heard it from a guy. You heard it from a guy. But ultimately, you have to you know get these things. Uh, Uh, this advice uh, confirmed or denied and applied by your own uh, attorney. But let's start with the most basic thing that I know of. And one thing that I'm always amazed at how few people know about, and this is regarding estate planning, the bare minimum that you need is not just a will. Okay, People think it's a will, but it is not just a will. It's a will and a living trust. And let me explain why that is so important. Okay. Everyone knows you need a will, but if you die and you uh, and 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 you do not have a living uh, living trust, your estate will go into something called probate. So probate is this thing; it's where the court's gonna um, uh, the court's gonna decide whether your will is valid or not. And uh, probate can affect you know estates literally as few as a, as as literally as a, just a few thousand dollars. So it it. It almost certainly does affect most, if not all, of the wealth formula community. Probate, it's also extremely expensive, right? Uh, And it may take, you know, 5% of your estate to get this resolved. And guess what? It can take up to two years to resolve as well. So expensive, it takes a long time. So imagine for a second, God forbid, something happens to you and your family gets stuck for two years, not able to access your estate that you left in your name. They have to pay thousands of dollars and they have to deal with the fact that you're gone. That is a terrible situation to be. Don't do it. Okay. A living trust is a very simple thing to do. Just a couple hundred not a couple hundred, but maybe a thousand dollars, a couple thousand dollars. And once you get one, you just put your assets under the name of the living trust and you can sleep well at night knowing you are avoiding this thing called probate. Easiest thing you can do, the most high impact thing you can do. And if you don't have that, you need that and, um, and, and go get it done. Now, for those of you with growing and larger estates, you might want to do something else on top of that. You see, there is this thing called the estate tax, right? If you die, and right now there's, you know, these limits are pretty high, right? I mean, or minimums, I should say, the, that it affects people who are, if you're just by yourself, like I think it's 10 or $11 million, and then jointly it's $22 million. Um, But that, in 2025, um, 
you know, so the estate taxes kick in at, after that point, right? Now, uh, they're really hefty. They're like 40%. Uh, but in 2025, uh, that minimum of, you know, 20 million if you're a couple or 10 million individual, whatever, it's all going to go down to the previous minimum, which is half of that. So I know for a fact that many of you out there, because I talk to you and I deal with, you know, a lot of folks in uh, Investor Club, already have an estate that's, you know, five million and uh, growing and you're young. So take it seriously. Um, and also remember that there's a very good chance that there'll be somebody in office eventually that may be like an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, by the way, wants that state tax to go down to $1 million to kick into after $1 million. And I know that would affect an enormous number of you. Um, but anyway, the bottom line is you got to start thinking about this now, because if you put some of these things into place that you potentially can, uh, if you act quickly, uh, you can potentially get grandfathered into some of these strategies. Now, bottom line is that these strategies that, that I'm alluding to are actually quite easy uh, right now to do. And that's why a lot of people call the estate tax the dumb tax, because, I mean, honestly, it's not terribly challenging uh, for people to, if they do some proper planning, to you know get their estate into a trust. And there's lots of ways to do that. I have something myself called a Nevada Dynasty Trust. Um, I don't, you know, want to play lawyer too much, so I'll get an estate planning attorney on, so we can dive into some of those options. And by the way, if you use Doug Laudmel for asset protection, like I do, you certainly can reach out to him as well to connect you with an estate attorney in your state, because that's really uh, what you need. It's important for um, the estate and asset protection teams to kind of see eye to eye. I can tell you that from personal experience. Because what they do sometimes is at odds with one another. And you also need to make sure that there is some tax implications that are considered in this. And those are, um, so you should potentially have your tax advisor in those conversations as well. Ask me how I know that. So, um, okay, so that's uh, that's probably a pretty good answer to that, right? Or at least a, a long answer. Let's see, let's go to the um, first audio question and this one is from garth hello dr joffrey this is garth from portland oregon my question might be really basic but i am wondering the difference between money and currency if there is any difference and if there is where does cryptocurrency land on this thanks well thanks garth and you don't need to call me dr joffrey buck is just fine i have left my doctor coat behind in Chicago a few years ago now. But uh, thank you for your question. And it's a good question. It's a complicated one. So let's just go to the basics first. Money, by definition, uh, is a store of value. It's an intrinsic store of value within itself. Uh, and then that's, so that's money. Now, currency typically refers to fiat currency. And it has buying power because the government says it has value. You know, there's this important quote that everybody talks about. You know, you hear it in the gold uh, communities all the time. You get in 1912, you hear J.P. Morgan saying, money's gold. Money is gold, nothing else. What he meant was that everything else was credit. And these days, that's very true, of course. The dollar is nothing more than debt. And when you're paying somebody in dollars, you're not paying them in money because that has no intrinsic value, but all you're doing is you're trans transferring over receivables, right? The government owes you money, you government owes you money, that kind of thing. But for everyday practical use, they are, you know, one and the same. We think about them the same way. So now cryptocurrency is really not that straightforward. And, and I do think that it's important to distinguish between Bitcoin and the other currencies that I think are still uh need to be better defined. But let's just talk about Bitcoin, okay? Now, I believe personally that Bitcoin is money. Why? Because it has intrinsic value, because it is scarce, and because it must be created through a process called mining, which costs time and money, 
and is not easy to do. You have to, you know, spend a lot of resources to do it. And in this regard, it's really not that dissimilar from gold, right? And then, you know, the gold bug said, well, yeah, you can use gold for something. You can't use, you can't use the, you know, Bitcoin for anything. Well, let's get serious here. I mean, most of the time people are just, you know, gold's a nice, shiny, pretty metal, right? I mean, it's, it, it, there's nothing inherent about it that's any more valuable. It's all in the eye of the beholder. So the same kind of thing. It's scarce and it's pretty. People say it's gold. So to me, it's not that different from Bitcoin and it's scarce. Uh, you know, listen, at the end of the day, uh, they, the, the reality is that Bitcoin has more similarities with gold than it does with the U.S. dollar. Think about it. Scarce. Can't print it. Can't, you know, it's not a inflationary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, I got to be clear about this because this is where I get into this, you know, question about gold in the first place, right? Why do people hold gold? Because they say it has intrinsic value. Why does it have intrinsic value? Well, maybe you can, you know, wear it and put it in some machines and stuff like that when you're building them. But here's the thing. Wouldn't, by that definition, wouldn't real estate then be money as well? Because it has intrinsic value. I mean, personally, you know, I don't see why gold has any more value than real estate. I mean, real estate, you actually live there. You work there. It's a structure. It has a function, right? Well, listen, bottom line is, to me, uh, you know, gold has one major function. That is to hedge inflation. Real estate has that same function. And uh, real estate can cash flow. Uh, so, so that's why I'm not really a gold bug. But I know that's a controversial topic in and of itself. And uh, we'll leave it at that. All right. Next question is from Kalichi. And um, it's a uh, written question. He says, hello. Hello, Buck. Hope you're well. This question is about wealth formula banking. Do you actually know anyone who has retired and it is drawing free income from their policies. Assuming I have $5 million cash, $5 million of cash value in the whole life policies, specifically we're talking about wealth formula banking, growing roughly at 5% a year, can I really withdraw $250,000 every year tax-free forever while leaving $5 million principal intact? Is that really that simple? What's the catch? If there's no catch, why isn't everyone doing this? Seems to me that all one has to do is to do whatever they love to do that pays well and throw their savings into whole life. In 10 to 20 years from now, they will definitely, as per the contractual guarantees, be able to retire very comfortably on tax-free income forever. Why bother with other risky investments like crypto, options, money lending, oil, gas, real estate, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, etc.? Again, is the above simplistic description of the whole life, i.e. wealth formula banking strategy accurate or am I missing something? Thanks, Kalichi. Okay, so great question and my knee-jerk response is, yes, you are correct. That's exactly how it works. But let me get Rod involved. Rod is obviously one of the Wealth Formula banking experts, and I actually had him record an answer. I guess the, the simple answer is that, yes, you understand it correctly. So if you had built up $5 million inside of your cash value inside of that whole life policy and and you're ready to, to retire and live off of that, then easily the, the 250000 a year you would be able to, to take as income and it would last perpetually. So um, he, he goes on to ask, you know, if that's the case, then why doesn't everybody throw their savings into whole life and 10 to 20 years from now, they'll definitely, as, part, as per the contractual guarantees, be able to retire very comfortably on tax-free income forever. So why bother with other risky investments? So for somebody who's content earning that 5% and living off of it tax-free, like you say, then I agree. It's there's not a catch. It's pretty simple. The way that the the contracts work, um, you could you could do that. So now I know that a lot of the listeners use it for the purpose of wealth formula banking, right? Using it in, in conjunction with the investments and uh, doing a lot more 
outside of the policy in addition to getting that growth, that compounding growth inside the policy. And so for somebody who is not actively involved in the other investments, maybe I would suggest shifting over to Velocity Plus where you can do, uh, you know, contribute a, a similar amount of money, but actually grow it a lot better because we're getting the leverage from the uh, from the bank loan. And if you're not familiar with, with what I'm talking about, then go to wealthformulabanking.com and we have a webinar there where you can learn a little more about it. But, but the idea is that when you get to retirement and you're looking at what your net equity is in the policy, it's not just a 5% income that we're producing off of that. It's, it's more like, you know, 10 to 13%. And so uh, it, it's much more substantial and it's because of the leverage piece that we're, we're using in, inside of that. And so, so if you're not someone who wants to be actively investing in, you know, the real estate and, and the other things, the other cash flow investments that we talk about, then Velocity Plus is a great way to see that grow in a passive way, but, but it also turn into that same, you know, kind of tax-free income in retirement. So that's the story on that one. So listen, uh, that was a very nice uh, answer from Rod. So basically the answer in short is, uh, Gleechy, it sounds like you uh, have got it right. Let me uh, address this question that you have. Why bother with other investments? You know, you've got this thing. The answer is you don't have to. I mean, listen, for, um, for people who are investing in real estate, people who are investing in, um, you know, some of these other things, I think the reality is what we're trying to do is to make even more money. Um, and frankly, there's like this level of, okay, I want to expand my means even more. Now you're, you're looking at this thinking I can do 5 million, um, at some point, And, uh, I, you know, I can live off of that over a period of time. And I love being a physician because I know you're a physician. I get that. But I think the bottom line is like if you you go across the board, you'll find a lot of people have a lot of different goals and ambitions. For me too, I mean, I would say I'm one of them. Uh, I would say I'm probably too greedy to think of it that way. I like the idea of being, you know, constantly creating more and more wealth. And for me, it's a lot of fun to invest in these things and watch them grow and make more and more money. So, um, but that being said, you know, I've said this in the past where um, over and over again, one of the reasons that I like wealth formula banking in particular is the contractual nature of that income. And it's, you know, we're talking about some significant returns over a period of time. The contractual nature of that money is a very compelling thing. And I've also said that if you don't listen to me and you don't want to invest in real estate and all you ever did was do wealth formula banking, I'd feel pretty good about that because I think you're going to still finish way ahead of the majority of, of people out there who are you know sinking their money in equities because they have no idea what's going to happen uh, with the equity markets at any given time, and I don't think they're protected. This basically is always on the upward trajectory, right? You don't have to deal with the up and down uh, sort of uh, trajectory that you deal with when it comes to the equity markets. Uh, for me, this represents, you know, if you think about the way investors usually hit things, they hit their their stocks and bonds, right? They think about stocks and they think about bonds. Where this fits in for me, banking uh, is uh, sort of analogous to the bond portfolio. What is the bond portfolio? Well, the bond portfolio is the safe thing, the super safe thing that you know just puts out a fixed amount of return. Bonds have a certain return, maybe they'll have like you know a couple percent or whatever. This is similar to that, and it just uh, it's much it's higher uh, than than bonds, uh, and it has uh, this death benefit, which is great as well. It grows tax free, which is great as well. Uh, so there's all these benefits to it that I think replace the necessity for me to even look at the bond market. The other thing about it is that you can borrow against it and you can borrow against it for arbitrage. Um, we'll talk about this. We've talked about this plenty of times before, but when you borrow against the cash value of your, uh, wealth formula banking account, what you're doing effectively is borrowing, uh, from the insurance company. 
So your money is still growing at that same compounding rate, but you're borrowing at a simple interest rate, and that creates this you know, very nice arbitrage. So some people like the idea of rather than just saying this is all the returns I want, they say, I'm not going to use this as my returns. I'm going to use this to juice my other returns. And that's the way a lot of other people use it as well. But bottom line is, it, it sounds like if you're happy doing what you're doing, more power to you. You don't have to think about anything. Just practice medicine. Uh, you know, keep putting money into this thing. And, you know, just like you said, when you get to that point, you know, you don't have to worry about the markets crashing at the last second and your kids will be taken care of. So, all right, next question. And we're already going pretty late. This is a long question. Okay. This is a very long question, or at least my answer is going to be very long here because this is uh, from Eric. He says, this is a hypothetical question. If you could participate actively and or passively in only three of the following alternative investment types over the next five to seven years, which ones and why? Okay, so there's a long there's a laundry list of different things here, which um, I think it's useful to go over. These are all things I think the reason Eric has them is because they have been the subject of, of podcasts of mine um, over a period of time. Let me give you my personal opinion on each. It's not... Uh, again, there's not, this is not investor advice, right? This is not advice. This is my opinion, but I'm going to go through each one that's on this laundry list and just give you a short little, uh, feedback from my opinion. Okay. Um, and then I'll come back and I'll give you my three favorites. So self-storage units. Okay. I like self-storage. I like self-storage because it's resilient to uh, the cycles, uh, the recessionary uh, cycles, et cetera. And um, the, the, the issue, like anywhere else, though, is you got to find the right operator. Um, you can also, you know, you could probably learn to do this. Um, I have not necessarily, you know, learned to do this, but I think it's a good business, um, you know, especially with the demographic changes. Uh, the boomers, as they retire and they leave their, you know, big houses and they move somewhere warm like Florida or something like that, then they got to put their stuff places and that that makes it great. Or you can raise rents very quickly in these things. Uh, you basically nickel dime people up, you know, significantly every year. Um, the challenge is finding where do you invest. And so I'll tell you that, you know, I'm not a big fan of funds. I know there are some funds out there. I'm not a big fan of them because I like to know what's in the uh, portfolio. And um, and I know for a fact that some of the funds are basically, uh, you know, just a bunch of properties that no one wanted to take down an individual asset necessarily. And so so they all kind of got grouped together. Um, I like self-storage, uh, but the deal has to be just right. It has to be just the right location, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Uh, and by the way, I think again, from an inflationary standpoint, it's a great, great place to be too. But you got to find the right deal. I'm sure we'll get. Hopefully, we'll get one this year in Investor Club. Mobile home parks, mobile home parks. Now, this should be a good place for hedging the economy because of uh, low income housing, right? Because of of the low income housing play, right? There's always going to be people who need it. The problem is, okay, but let me back up. There are people who own mobile home parks who are doing really well. And if you want to get in, in into that, I mean, hey, more power to you. I mean, there's people who are doing well and and they're making decent money, but always just look at it as a pure cash flow play, okay? And if you buy it on your own, you may get, who knows, 15-20% cash in cash and you know, you got to you got to know how to run these things. I don't I don't know very much about it. I hear it's not necessarily that hard. Um but, you know, I mean, obviously the uh, the professional operators are probably going to do more with it, but you can still make, they're basically cash cows, right? Now, here's the problem with investing in them as a limited partner, though, is that most of the funds I see, they might be giving you 9%, 10%. Um, and for me, for that kind of low-income housing, I mean, this is really like, you know, class D stuff, right? I mean, this is this is below apartment buildings. Um if you so nine ten percent is just not enough, right? Um, and the reason why the the that you're only getting you know eight nine ten percent is because well, I mean the operators are taking the other half usually. Um, if you can learn to buy these on your own, then it might be worth it. But the reality is that in a fund model um, or a syndicated model, 
there isn't going to be a lot of upside there, right? I mean, think about it. What do we do in the apartment space? We have a, the ability to raise rents quite a bit and uh, improve these properties. You can even take a property that has, you know, currently has residents who are, you know, C plus residents and take them to a B minus. And all of a sudden you, you know, you've got some hipsters in there and all of a sudden you've opened up a new, completely different kind of asset, right? You can do that with apartments, but in, in mobile home parks, you really can't do that. You can't do that. I mean, seriously, like you, how much can you raise the rent on a mobile home park? You know, people are living in mobile home parks, if they if they if they move up too much, then they don't live in mobile home parks too much anymore. So the bottom line is the appreciation on there is going to be limited. The upside is going to be limited, and that means the annualized return will be limited. Okay, uh, because you're not going to be able to rely very much on appreciation. It's going to be your cash on cash, and think of it. That's all. So I'm not a big fan. Just not a big fan. Because if you think about it, the next thing on the list here, large multifamily, 50 plus units. Well, for me, this is my number one asset class. I mean, people got to live somewhere. And unlike mobile home parks, you can get significant IRRs, annualized returns by value add through inflation, gentrification, all these things that you really are limited in mobile home parks. Um, you know, you can't count on all that with mobile home parks. And the reality is for 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 investors, if you look in you know investor club, our yields are just just as good as be, the better uh, than than what you're seeing in the funds for mobile home parks, and they're much higher quality assets uh, in the right hands. Uh, in my opinion, as even as a limited partner, this is continues to be the best place for not only capital preservation and growth, capital preservation, but also growth in the next five. 10 years. Okay. So, um, small multifamily, in other words, say you don't want to be a limited partner. Okay. You want to buy 10, 20 units, uh, et cetera. Well, I used to do that, um, more. Uh, I don't really do that anymore. Uh, and I did really well, right? I mean, I, I did really well with that kind of strategy. Uh, if you're a good operator, um, then great, go for it. The problem is that, okay. So say you're buying like a you know, million dollar asset, you're going to put in $200,000, $250,000 in that one asset to just buy it. Uh, the problem is that the risk profile is significant there if you don't know what you're doing, right? Now, as opposed to, you know, spreading your $200,000, $250,000 over four deals in a syndicated deal and getting exposure to, you know, 10 times more doors, all of a sudden you've got $2 million dollars you know, you've got two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars of equity sitting in one deal, and his buck stops with you. So, if you are comfortable with that, by all means, I was comfortable with it. I didn't necessarily like it, um, and so um, what I would what I would say is, if you're the type of person who really wants to get into the real estate game and and be a landlord, then go for it. Otherwise, don't. Understand that it's very different to have a 1020 unit apartment building than it is a 200 unit apartment building. One, you're a landlord. The other one, you're managing a small business. So just be aware of that. Single family homes is the next one on the list. And I'll just tell you, I just don't, I don't like them. And not for our, not for our demographic, meaning like accredited investors, because, you know, you have the ability to do something a lot more scalable, right? You just through, just through syndications and getting lots and lots of exposure. The thing is I don't like about single family homes. Here's the deal. There's not enough scalability. There's too much capex. Okay. So one roof and one furnace for each unit. Um, and everyone I know who owns five or six single family homes wishes they didn't own five or six single family homes. They, they want to sell them. They get to 10 and they're like, this is terrible. And you know, I get $100 per property, and then the next thing you know, one month, I get a $5,000 furnace replace. So I'm not a big fan. Um, so with multifamily, uh, if you're going to do it on your own, I, I would recommend that um, in, or, or the way I think that most people who are probably not natural-born landlords should do is, is consider syndications. Um, when you get more scale, and exposure to more doors, things become more stable, cash flow becomes more stable, there's less risk. And in reality, 
what we're seeing in our, you know, in our limited partnership opportunities is that the returns are, you know, better than probably most people can do on their own. The next uh, one on the list is agriculture. Agriculture uh, uh, followed by CBD, specialty coffee, chocolate. Well, so let's start with, you know, some of these things because I know they've been on our my podcast before. And just understand that when I have something on a podcast, it does not mean I'm advocating for it or saying that you should invest in it or that I even like the deal. All right. So um, let's start with some generalities. Uh, agriculture is fine. Um, the the stuff that I see some I, I some of the stuff that I'm seeing out there in the podcast ecosystem that you're mentioning concerns me. Okay, and one of them is that I don't like foreign investments very much. I've had some experience with them. I've realized the implications of those, and I won't I won't do them again. Certainly on a uh, for, with a smaller uh, operator, and the reason for that is that. If things go wrong, there you you have very little recourse. Okay, you have very little recourse, and it's very difficult. Uh, you know, you have to know your your operator very well. You have to trust them because if something happens overseas, good luck trying to you know get any sort of retribution. It ain't gonna happen, right? So be very careful with that. I know people get excited about it. You know, they go on some sort of, um, you know, they go on some sort of like. Uh, investment trip and they come back and, you know, they're excited to, um, they heard about something like this and it's shiny and bright and stuff like that. Well, why, what's the point? I, I just, you know, best place to invest is right here in the U S. Okay. Um, the other thing is agriculture in general, I would say, um, it's fine. It's going to be low yield. And also I will say that when there's some thing like it doesn't grow for three years and won't yield any cash flow for that period of time, what? Seriously? You're okay with that? Uh, okay, I, I'm not. And then on top of that, when you sign the contract on these things, look at the fine print. Look at what your exit is because you should never invest in anything unless you've thoroughly thought about how you're going to get out of it. And some of these things have that um, problem as well. I'm not a big fan personally. Okay. Now, CBD, and I've seen that come up in the ecosystems a lot lately. Um, I, again, I am CBD. Again, that space is full of charlatans. I will just be careful. You know, I see stuff. People are like, yeah, we're going to go do this in California, right? Well, listen, I live in California, okay? And let me tell you right now, everybody I know around here knows this to be true. There is a glut of pot in California. You know, and apart from a selective, highly skilled business people who are in the space, everyone else is going to get killed. They just are. Uh, there, there's, this is like, you know, the horse has already left on this one, right? People think I'm going to do CBD in California. Guess what? There's a few people who've thought about this before you. And if you're coming into this space and you have no previous experience in, you know, pot in CBD and all this stuff, you're going to be, you're, you're, you're way behind. Okay. And the last thing is that unless you are a major player, like you got serious pockets behind you, I would stay away from this because there is there is like so many laws and so many things to dodge in this space. I all I can tell you is I have yet to see, you know, personally, um, you know, from anything that I've been, you know, sent uh, that's in the U.S. in California, anything like that that I would be comfortable investing in. Okay. Now I know there's, you know, startups and things like that. And if you want to spend a little bit of money in those from, you know, people who know what they're talking about, I, I get it. But I, I would definitely look at that as a fairly high risk thing. But for heaven's sake, you know, just don't listen to, you know, a podcast or, you know, get, get an email about, hey, we're going to start growing pot in, in California. You want in? Just please think, think, think. Okay. Um, let's see. The next one, um, I'm going to uh, skip oil and gas because uh, I think I have a question coming up about oil and gas here in a moment. Cryptocurrency, um, again, listen, it's an asymmetric risk type thing. Shouldn't be your bread and butter thing at all. I mean, 5 10% max in this bucket of asymmetric risk things that could go. I mean, the reason I do it is, hey, listen, Bitcoin goes up by, you know, 
10x, which I honestly personally think it will, um, you know, in the five to 10 year horizon. Uh, I want to I want to be able to to enjoy that. Now, it, it's not something that I would spend a lot more than that on personally. Uh, I only put money in there that, you know, keeps me from, you know, there, it's stuff that's the money that I would just spend on things that will, you know, like a, a, a fancy car or something like that. that's what I do. Life settlements. Okay. Life settlements, just as a reminder, what are they? Life settlements are when you buy um, somebody else's life insurance policy. So maybe somebody's, you know, 80 years old, uh, in real bad health. They would like money now. They don't have any, you know, they're not worried about that their kids don't need any money anymore. So you can buy these policies from them a lot of times at, you know, 50, 60 cents on the dollar, which is a much better deal for them than not getting any money or just, you know, trying to pull out cash value. It's generally going to be more than the cash value. Um, so, uh, it's, it's an interesting play. Um, we've talked about this before. We actually have a webinar on it at hedgetheeconomy.com if you're interested. So what, so what are you, so, so if you're investing life settlements, um, you know, you're basically looking and saying, I'm a little worried about the economy and maybe I have a self-directed IRA or solo 401k because, you know, honestly, the other thing is that this is not a tax sheltered type investment. So you have to think about that as well. You think to yourself, I want to hedge. I want a small portfolio, you know, small part of my portfolio, something that I feel very comfortable is going to be there. Well, out of all the things that are guarantees in life, death is probably the only one. People used to say death and taxes, but, you know, I mean, the president of the United States, I'm paying taxes. So that's no guarantee in life, right? I mean, uh, death is the only guarantee in life. So that it might be worth it. Uh, check it out for yourself, hedgetheeconomy.com. Now, notes. Now, notes, it's sort of broad. Uh, notes basically being liens on on property for the most part. A lot of times that's what it's indicating. It really depends on the operator. You know, I would, um, you know, look at it as, as, you know, if you look at AHP servicing, you know, with George's company, I have looked at this as in terms of short-term uh, kind of places to put money for liquidity that that I can pull out, you know, if there's a liquid fund like AHP servicing, for example. But I like appreciation, and so that's the problem, right? So you might get nine, ten percent cash on cash, and in, in in notes, you might do a little bit better, but you know, you're not you're not getting any tax advantages. So with multifamily real estate, I mean, I can still get nine, ten percent cash on cash, and then I get twenty percent plus IRRs typically. And, you know, the, the, the nine, 10% I got is tax deductible. So it's really the tax equivalent of making like 15%. So, you know, personally, if, if it's me, I do equity over any kind of real estate debt. Uh, and mostly it's because of the tax advantages. Now, if you are going to do it again, look at your qualified money, like IRAs, 401ks, et cetera. Uh, and, um, you know, look at a fund. I also think this is one of those things where you really have to look at the operator. Um, I do like George. Um, he's one of the smartest guys I know. So HP servicing certainly would be something to consider. And I also like liquidity, the component of this It's a nice place to keep it for a period of time. Um, and, and understand it's not without risk either. This is non-performing paper, but again, that's where the operator comes in. And, you know, I've, uh, I think George is a really smart guy, so I'm I feel fairly comfortable with that. Gold and silver. Well, honestly, I don't see the point. As I've said earlier, I mean, gold and silver are hedged inflation, so uh, so is real estate, but it cash flows. And frankly, I don't believe in the zombie apocalypse narrative that I've heard before. You know, where you buy that uh, monster box of silver coins, which, by the way, I did because I I drank the Kool Aid a few years ago, um, and and, and, you know, there's this idea that, you know, you're, the only thing that's going to be able to buy anything is monster box of silver. That's the only thing that people are going to accept. Well, I just don't think that's going to happen. So, um, so for me, why not buy real estate? At least it cash flows, at least, you know, uh, you know, it has, you can force appreciation, et cetera. Now, if you're super paranoid, uh, on real estate, just, you know, limit your leverage. I'm not saying don't own gold or silver. I'm just saying, Think about it before you go and drink the Kool-Aid on the, 
you know, the fear-based stuff there. Music royalties, uh, we did have a podcast on that. Honestly, I just don't know much about it, but, you know, some people seem to be doing okay with it. I wouldn't make this a core holding unless you are in the music business and really know what you're doing. Um, I would put this in your high-risk profile. Artwork, similar Listen, I like artwork is like gold in my view. And if you are an art buff and you really know what you're doing, then go for it. Uh, but I'm not an art buff. Some people like vintage cars like me to enjoy it and allow it to appreciate. I think art's similar to that, right? So it goes into that pile that I've talked about before where it's like if you have an enjoy, you know, if you're one of those people who buys stuff, um, you know, nice stuff and you you know, you want nice stuff. Uh, well, art, not fine art, and car, fine, fine, you know, vintage cars are fun, but they they will appreciate. So I think art is similar to that. I know we had a podcast on fractional ownership of art. Uh, you don't get the same effect because you don't get to keep it in your house, but you you know you do get to uh, go to um, you know they do keep it in a gallery. So that's kind of neat. However, you know what? I'm not a big enough art guy uh, to do this, so I'm going to stick to bread and butter uh, stuff instead, like real estate. Websites, online businesses, if you know what you're doing, this can be very profitable. Uh, The problem is that most people don't know what they're doing. And I have looked into these things a little bit on behalf of people, and I've been a little suspicious, at least of some of the sites. They seem like Ponzi schemes to me, but I don't know for sure. Okay, but if you know what you're doing with this, this is a great space. I mean, you can make a lot, you can make a decent money in this. I've done that. Private lending. Well, uh, private lending's, um, you know, as opposed to notes, I guess you're just lending to flippers and stuff. I mean, I would suggest uh, that this is not a bad thing to do if you know how to do it. I know there's some people who do it pretty fairly prolifically in our group. Um, here's what I would suggest, though. If you're worried um, about the economy or uh, at all, and lending to home flippers is probably one of the riskiest thing you can do. But how can you mitigate that risk? Well, you may just loan at, you know, 50% loan to value, right? And in that situation, if they can't pay you back, at least you got a property that you can take over at 50% of the cost. Right now, I definitely would not be, you know, uh, doing super uh, high loan to value type notes uh, or private private loans. Um, and then, you know, obviously there's some stuff like lending club and stuff. I, I've not really, you know, looked into much, but I think some people have where you can do some of that as well. But okay, so that's the big list. My favorites, large scale real estate, like apartments and self storage. Uh, and one that you didn't mention on here that we talked about earlier, wealth formula banking for me, that's stocks and bonds, that's equity and, um, and, and, and basically a bond type structure for me. Right. And that makes up 90% of my investments right there. And then the rest of it's, you know, shiny stuff, asymmetric risk stuff like Bitcoin gives me exposure to something that could explode and make, make me a lot of money potentially with a small investment. But if I lose it, I won't go crying. So, um, you know, Bottom line is uh, that's, you know, that's it. I mean, the, the the moral of the story is keep it simple. I think one of the things that I noticed that a lot of people are doing uh, through because of the podcast ecosystem, and I, I'm somewhat to blame for this because I think, you know, we do put on different types of things, but we've really narrowed that down a lot, um, is that my advice would be that what I have noticed in my, my, my own uh, investing success track record over the last 10 years is the stuff that makes money tends to be pretty boring, right? Like real estate. I mean, at least I've done so many things in the last 10 years. And, you know, the thing that keeps paying me is the stuff that's the most boring. So don't go look out, look for shiny objects. Okay. Don't look for foreign investments. Don't look for, you know, crazy stuff. When it comes to your bread and butter stuff, keep it boring. Right. I mean, seriously, you know, you've got a, if you're a limited partner, you find a, uh, with an operator that keeps delivering, why are you looking like for 10 different things? Okay. I understand there's a, a need for some diversity, but okay, maybe two or three different things and maybe similar types of, uh, you know, you find good operators, you stick with them, but you don't need like, you don't need like 10 of those. I mean, it's silly, right? Just pick a few things. And if there's some, you know, stuff like Bitcoin or 
something like that that really interests you and that's kind of fun for you. Maybe you want to buy some, you know, vintage cars or something like that. Do that, but but stick, stay boring, stay boring, and and you will. Uh, there, there's an eloquence about boring uh, that I have experienced in the last decade that I can just say from my experience um, over time. Uh, it's not as boring when you get those nice payouts. So anyway, um, we still have a bunch of questions and I've been going for almost an hour, so I'm going to cut it off and there will be there for a part three to ask Buck. Uh, but um, I do uh, want to thank you and uh, uh, for for having all these questions. And um, we will have part three of Ask Buck next time. Uh, thanks for joining Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Jaffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.